All right. I love you guys. You guys got the blurry. I ain't showing you what's in my back room. I don't care, dude. I, I feel like I'm always cautious about information leakage. And like, I don't know, like, it's hard for me to know that I've scrubbed everything out of my background. So it's like, well, I'd rather just uh, be careful about what I, what I put yeah, on dude, screen. Till we have a fancy podcast room or something all set up, you know? Exactly. I mean, I'm, I was reluctant to even share video considering I look like a cop this month. Uh, my Movember mustache. I mean, cops are dicks, and but you look like a cool cop because I know you. I was thinking about <laughs> I was telling Nicole I was gonna I was gonna go around and ask neighborhood teenagers if uh, they knew where I could buy some reefer. <laughs> yeah, that would go out really well. That, that's exactly what it looks like uh, you're going for. If you uh, were trying to dress up for Halloween as a cop, like you're, you're doing a great job. What you need is a, a different shirt, like one of those ones that like the cops always have, like that they get for free Not at those cop. conferences they go to or whatever. I Barney's mean, bail services. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I when you, when you see those undercover, uh, you know, guys that have the high and tight uh, haircut, that's you, you got to reset your uh, your haircut machine so you can get the high and tight. <laughs> and then yep. dressed take, in take the dressed in like biker clothes, but no tattoos or anything. Yeah. And then the wrong shoes or something. Exactly. Yeah, we're definitely getting the getting the cop uh, image uh, ironed out. But um, yeah, it's just amazing how much a mustache can uh, can get you towards that goal. It's like really perv you out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me in our podcast room. Let's shoot our first episode of this uh, podcast. That's going to be called whatever we decide to call it. Which that sounds like a great name. Uh, I think that... we should definitely move forward on that. Yeah, I, I'm still partial to the third coin. I think it uh, totally gives you a little bit of a what is the matrix style of a question for like, why am I here? What, what are we talking about? Yeah, no, I love that name, too. I think it's a great name, the third coin. And it begs the question, which is what we're all here for. Yeah, sure. What is the third coin? That's the obvious question. But then aren't there like 20,000 different cryptos? There's 13,000 yeah. alone on uh on uh, coinmarketcap.com. So what was coin number one and coin number two? I think everybody knows coin number one was Bitcoin, right? Yeah, um, and Ethereum. that's it. Like, why even are we asking that question? Which is what, you know, makes this first episode, its first episode is who are we and why do we care? And then why did we name it that? And what should we talk about? Which we already figured out as well. So now I'm presenting. Yeah. Hey, I'm Lewis May. I'm a digital marketer. I specialize in websites, content marketing, and social media. That's why I'm here today is because I like to ask questions, learn, and share information. So Okay. I'm just, uh, I'm just a dad with a couple of kids, and I live in the Midwest, and I've been working in IT most of my life. I built my first computer with my dad when I was seven. I've always been into this stuff. I've just been a geek my whole life. And crypto is just something I'm really passionate about, and Unfortunately, I, I don't have as much of it as I should because I bought some in the past and I've, I've sold it. And But I've seen the opportunities come and go and I'm, I'm in it for the tech in a lot of ways. I, I just think that's really cool. I, I bought Bitcoin back in 2012 and I didn't think it was going to go anywhere as high as it did. I probably would have kept it 
but now I've got like a few crumbs left. Grant, what's yeah. up with you? I don't necessarily know a lot about crypto, but I've used enough wallets and I've been on like these exchanges. So like I'm sufficiently traveled that I'm more used to doing crypto than probably your average person. Since I haven't just bought on Coinbase, I've bought on every single exchange. I was there when it was less popular. What would make it interesting for me is, hey, this is when I bought my first crypto and this is what I did with it. And I don't know how honest you want to be about whatever you've done, but you've been around. And that's what's important is not that you failed to see the price or whatever, but just like that you've used- Because there's billionaires that every... failed to see the price. You yeah. Know? I was listening to that Diffie podcast last night and man, he was like, I knew about it in 2010 and 2009, and I didn't even buy it. That's Diffie from Diffie Hellman. And he's like, I didn't even buy Bitcoin. I knew mine it. I didn't even want anything to do with it. He's like, I missed the vote. You know, I remember telling you about it after I just, okay, I'm going to be, I think some honesty is actually appropriate here. And I have statute of limitations stuff, and I didn't really <laughs> do anything that hurt anybody anyway. So long You didn't buy I any weapons that. for Iraq. Nope. And nor okay, did cool. I arrange for anybody to be assassinated or anything like that. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I um, saw this DMT, the spirit molecule, and I wanted to try DMT. And I was like, how the hell do you do that? And I heard about Silk Road. This is back in 2012. So Silk Road took Bitcoin. What the hell's Bitcoin? Magic internet money. Okay. How do I get that? Mt. Gox? What? Okay, sure. So I go down to the freaking ATM machine with this code and put some... $20 bills into this ATM machine with a Western Union coupon and I get some other coupon back and I go to Mt. Gox and I punch some stuff in and then all of a sudden I get Bitcoins. So then I, I, I've never been very trusting. I didn't like anybody else holding. So the more I learned about technolo the, the technology, I realized these aren't my Bitcoins. These are Mt. Gox's Bitcoins that they're holding in my name. So Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Exactly. So I downloaded the Bitcoin full node client and synced up to the blockchain and learned about how this stuff worked enough to get my Bitcoins out. And it turned out I, I had two separate purchases. And the second purchase, I got my Bitcoins out just in time. So you figured out get. how to get, you were right away realized that if you don't own the data, whatever that data is, you don't own the Bitcoin. And right. you and wanted to know how to do that right away. Right. There's custodial wallets. Somebody else holds your money and yep. there's non-custodial. And that's like Grant just said, not your keys, not your coin. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I you're going through I... something that's fascinating because this was a decade ago almost. And there's 99.9% .9 of people who have Bitcoin or any type of cryptocurrency right now haven't even gone through this train of thought. I saw a comment on Reddit. It was a while ago. Was some guy was like, I spent X number of Bitcoin on Target gift cards back in 2011. And I have so much regret. And somebody else says, yeah, I spent X number of Bitcoin on a sheet of acid um, in 2011, and I have no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the, the custodial versus non-custodial, I, th I think that's like a, a, a critical first point to talk about. It, it's fine to have custodial coins. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that fundamentally. Like most people cannot keep track of their own coins. If you look at the number of coins that have been lost because people are trying to do this for themselves, it's it's a lot. And I'd say, Dan, if I know from your experience in the past, like trying to keep track of those keys and what's in what, I mean, we what we refer to it as couch cushion, couch cushion Bitcoin, because it's like you have some wallet somewhere that you just like forgot about or that they had some dust left over because 
at the time, it just didn't seem like that much BTC. And as the price of BTC keeps going up, then this dust that gets left around ends up being worth more and more. You know, somebody tipped you a small amount that seemed like nothing. And then suddenly that's worth $20,000 years later. So, right. you know, custodial sort of, uh, it, it kind of is a negative term, but I think for a lot of people, if you can find like a fairly trustworthy source, it's not a bad route because it's really hard to sort of secure this stuff and keep track of it on you your own. You can still it make is... it money and use it as an investment and never take possession of it. Right. Well, so you, know. you can, let's say people use the popular services and a lot of people have used Coinbase and, and that's what I would recommend. I use Coinbase as kind of my on-ramp. I have it linked up to my bank account. If I want to buy some crypto and I want to use cash to do it, I open up Coinbase Pro because there's lower fees than Coinbase. A lot of people don't know that, but a lot of people also use Robinhood because they got into Robinhood. And what people don't know about Robinhood is, and I learned this pretty quick, when I, the first thing I did with the Robinhood app before getting screwed on GameStop, those bastards, was I bought some Dogecoin. And then immediately I wanted to transfer my Dogecoin out to my hardware wallet. And I realized you can't transfer it out in Robinhood. You just basically have a ledger entry in their Excel spreadsheet. You can't transfer in or out. You just quote unquote own Dogecoin, but do you? If you own the value of it and when you sell it, they pay you whatever it's worth at that time. Um, but it's different than Coinbase, which is another custodial wallet where you actually can transfer your crypto out. Um, yeah, I would definitely, there's different types of custodial wallets. Both of them would at least be able to, if I got hit by a truck, my wife could get my estate papers to either company and get the value extracted for my kids and for her. I have another custodial over. wallet, I guess it's called Uphold, but I can't, I can put cash in it and I can put coin in it, but I can't transfer from coin to cash or cash to coin. Like I can't put in a hundred bucks into uphold and then use that hundred dollars to purchase any cryptocurrency. It's more of a, like an exchange where if I wanted to send either of you some money, I could put in some crypto and send that crypto to you, but I can't purchase crypto within it. Huh. Yeah. So more of a different purpose, totally different purpose for it. So there's I think a couple, a there's a couple of interesting things uh, that you mentioned, Dan, that I, I'm not sure if we're kind of doing one-on-one stuff. Uh, hardware wallet was one thing that you mentioned. So that's a critical thing to think about whenever you're going to have your own uh, crypto and you're not going to have a custodial situation is that you have these uh, dedicated physical devices where it allows you to store it in a much more secure fashion than say having something on your own machine. Cause then what happens is uh, you segment your computer from ever holding of the essence of the control of cryptocurrency, which is those private keys or the monomics that allow you to generate private keys, that that never even touches your box. So that if your machine were to be compromised, then it's much more difficult to sort of get down to that piece of hardware and get it to cough up the right information. Because oftentimes you have to do something physically on the device to, to make it interact or even best ones, what happens is those keys never leave that device. And then whenever you want to do something, it's a transaction that needs to be signed. And this really gets into the deep guts of like how these technologies work, because uh, what you need to do is, is create like a spend bundle. And that spend bundle is the thing that ultimately allows you to say on chain, I want some of this uh, coin to move around. And that that's really the essence of what it means to have a coin or a cryptocurrency, because the, the fundamental of what 
blockchain or Bitcoin technology is it's a really shitty database. And that's the way that I describe it to anybody because it, there's oftentimes a lot of confusion about what is this really? And there's uh, what you're presented with as a developer, as somebody who's working with blockchain technology, you get asked like, why are you using this or what is it for? And you really have to ask yourself, why am I not just using a database? What's the point of all of this stuff? If we're talking about what the essence of a database or what blockchain does as a database, it's a store of information that operates in a very distributed fashion. And the fundamental piece of technology or the idea that kind of revolutionized all of this is that you have the ability to have this database that exists all over the place. It's trustless, it's peer to peer, and it, it allows for storage of information. And then what the private keys does is it allows you to make a transaction within that database where it allows you to make a mutation, a change to that database that says, move this coin from here to here. So buying, selling, whatever, all of these things ultimately, uh, you know, fall into the same category of what is uh, the essence of moving coins from one spot to the next. And if you have the ability to move a coin, then you have control over it. And so then what happens is I transfer some amount of coin to somebody and then I get some of the, I get whatever change back. And then that's now living in a new address. And now you have some, and I have whatever was left over. So it's like this, this is this fundamental uh, thing that we're doing. And that was what Bitcoin invented to begin with just that idea, a distributed I... database, a distributed ledger, and the ability to control and move coins and do all of this in a cryptographically secure fashion. Cryptographic. Right. So, so this could be compared to, cause you know, remember I'm not a programmer. So when you say database, I'm like, oh, an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. It's not that, it's not that much different from an Excel spreadsheet. Really think about what is it really doing? Cause there are just specific entries that says, here's an address and here's the amount of coin that's sitting at this address. That's the fundamental it, of Bitcoin. It's kind of like one Excel spreadsheet that everybody has access to, but you can't chain, you can only go down in it. You can't change any of the upper, what are they called? Uh, the upper areas of the spreadsheet, unless you right. have the key for that row. When I was explaining it to my wife and my father-in-law, I said, it's kind of like a shared checkbook. You and Donna, your wife have, have a shared checkbook and you both, you know, put your money in there and then she spends some, she puts it in the ledger, then you spend some and you put it in the ledger and you can't go back and cross something out. You can't go back. Once it's written, it's written and, and everyone can see what happens, money in and money out. That's just oversimplification, but yeah, it's, it's a good analogy, I think. Yeah, so the, the whole idea of adding a new row to the Excel spreadsheet or the, to the database, that's, that's what mining is, right? You have this proposed next state of the database or of the blockchain, which is the mempool. Everybody's trying to do stuff. And that's where all the fee stuff comes in is because there are these units of time, like every single unit of time on each different blockchain. And they're all different, like blockchain uh, or Bitcoin has its own unit of time. Ethereum has its own unit of time and all these different blockchain technologies, they're messing around with these fundamental parameters. But in each unit of time, you have a new state of the database that can be computed. And you have this proposed state, which is the mempool. So you've got everybody that's sort of acting in this peer-to-peer -peer fashion where I might say, I want to transfer some coins. And Lewis says he wants to transfer some coins. And Dan says he wants to transfer some coins. And we're all competing for just a fixed space that's within that next unit of time. And if that competition for space is high, then 
what will happen is the ones that have paid the biggest fee will get included in that next unit of time. And so then you'll roll to the next one. So if you put in a really low fee, the chance of you getting your transaction through is lower. And it might take a lot longer for that to go through because you're waiting until there's a place where your transaction fee is in the right spot to auction that space up. So that, that's the other thing that's happening within a lot of these different coins is you're paying for this space. And the one that I think it's the most press is probably Ethereum, you know, Ethereum's gas fees. That's their mechanism for bidding for space or bidding for compute time in the Ethereum virtual machine. And that's that mechanism for how do I get included or how does my transaction actually go through? So then the miner will take those top ones and then all of them are trying to find this solution to a special problem that's been proposed. And whoever finds it in proof, they get to commit the next transaction. They say, I've got the transaction. They commit that next uh, chunk to the database and then they get a reward for that. And that reward has been steadily decreasing over time. So at the beginning, the block rewards for Bitcoin were really, the block rewards for Ethereum were really high. But then as time goes on, those rewards keep going down and down and down as the emission of the coins reaches its end state. That's one of the reasons why a lot of these cryptocurrencies have gone up in value is for, because it's gotten harder and harder and Scarcity. harder to get the coins. Difficulties increased and the reward has decreased. So it naturally has an effect on the price. So Bitcoin, I believe in the beginning, wasn't the block reward like 50 Bitcoins? Uh, every block, so every 10 minutes, 50 new Bitcoins was minted. And then the first halvening event happened was that in 2012. And then it went to 25 Bitcoins and then to 12 in uh, 2016. And then in 2020, it just went to what, six and a half. I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So it's called the halvening event. And the, the only the total supply of Bitcoin will be 21 million. That's written into the code. But and you can technically never get to it because of halvening. So you'll ne there'll never be a total of 21 million. There'll always be one little fraction less than 21 million. Well, logically, but I think... Actually, how is that going to work? Uh, and they can change it, can't they, if the devs agree on a change? Well, what's, that's what's known as a fork. So yeah. it's it's unlikely that's uh, going to change. It's built into the fundamentals of how the chain works or the consensus mechanism. There have been certain things that have been proposed to change different blockchain technologies, fundamental code structure. And what it requires is that a whole bunch of people who are responsible for keeping the chain moving sort of switch to that new version and that's called a fork so you can have soft forks and you can have hard forks and soft forks are where you have some amount of change that's happening but nobody's forced to update to the latest code but then you have a thing called a hard fork and this is where you can actually split the chain because if some people just fundamentally are like you know what i don't care what you're doing i don't like your proposed chain and they get left behind and there's a great example of a hard fork that sort of split the chain in two which was uh, the first ethereum split when ethereum uh, first existed there was uh, a problem with one of the like early adopters for it had a bunch of money that was uh, stolen and they made a decision that they wanted to roll that back. They didn't want that money to be stolen. They thought that it was really going to hurt the adoption of Ethereum. They said, hey, we're going to roll this transaction back. We're going to fix this and we're going to restore the coins to the people that lost them. And uh, there were a bunch of early adopters on Ethereum that said that is uh, antithetical to you know the, the way that we think this should work. And so Ethereum Classic was was born from that. And the split therein was ETH Classic and, and Ethereum proper. And the Ethereum proper sort of allowed that transaction. I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a similar type of split 
when Ethereum goes to proof of stake for a bunch of miners to be like, well, we don't care what you're doing with uh, this proof of stake business. That's way too centralized for us. We don't really like that. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see another split occur. That's it does E2 that they're talking about that's supposed to happen relatively soon, right? Yeah, I think it's beginning of next year. Isn't it? I'm not not sure exactly the date. I don't mine Ethereum currently, so I'm not staying abreast of this as much as uh, you know I, I might otherwise. It's it's not my preferred coin of choice, but yeah, some soonish time is when it's been promised that this staking stuff is going to take place, and then that's going to change the consensus uh, mechanism for Ethereum. It's no longer going to be proof of work. Now it's going to be uh, a very centralized set of nodes, and the only way you can advance the chain is to have some amount of stake in the game, right? You have to have a certain amount of coins and then somebody who's running a particular machine with a lot of money on the line, essentially, since they've swooped up some amount of Ethereum, that they would be able to move the, the chain to the next next state, no longer based on some cryptographic challenge, but uh, rather just based on like a trust model kind of thing. There's, there's an important uh, point about forks that uh, has been overlooked, or Grant and I take it for granted, but if you're on a chain and you have some uh, coin on a chain and the chain forks into two separate chains, you now have the same amount of coin on both new chains. When Bitcoin split into Bitcoin Cash, everybody who had Bitcoin got basically an airdrop. It's called an airdrop of the new. And currently there are 74 forks of Bitcoin. So if you were in in the early days and you had 10 Bitcoins, you would have 10 Bitcoins on 74 different forks today if you hadn't moved them. That have monetary uh, value at this point, that have value uh, in US dollars. Yeah, there's a website, forkdrop.io, and they list them. Not all of them have value. Some of them are just pennies. Okay. But uh, it's definitely, well, and not all of these are forks. Some of these are airdrops on the fork, but there are a lot of forks of Bitcoin. There's Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Diamond, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin God. Bitcoin. You guys can see from my point of view, while I love this conversation that's been going on for 30, almost 30 minutes, from my point of view, we've actually opened up more questions than we've, than we've closed answers. We still haven't answered the question, what is the third coin? We've talked briefly about Bitcoin and we've talked about- Ethereum. We don't even know what the so first two coins are. I don't think that that's, I'm not sure that's the point of this podcast. And I, I wouldn't even propose that we would get to that for a long period of time. I, I don't, don't think, think we do either, Dan, yeah. because I don't, from a guy of my perspective, I want to know about more about forks. I want to know more about how the money value actually works. I'm just kind of posing all the questions, like how does this value actually work and get calculated? Where did the money go when people buy? If I decide I want a thousand dollars worth of Ethereum, where does that money go? Who gets that money? Does it cease to exist? Like... You need a buyer and a seller on both sides of it, just like- Same um, thing, everything, okay. Right? And so you have market makers uh, like Coinbase, they have plenty of Ethereum, they have plenty of Bitcoin and they'll sell it or buy it. But basically you've got other people up there who are trying to sell it when you're trying to buy and when you're trying to 
sell, they're trying to buy. If I were watching a podcast about this, about crypto, and I heard that there was a third coin, I'd want to at least know what it is so I could go buy some before we get around to finally telling but, them. But I don't, I don't know that that's, see, that's the thing though, like that just locks us into some people saying they're not interested. When you think about this, like what we're doing is we're posing a question, what is the third coin? Some people would say it's Algorand, some people would say it's whatever, like Cardano, Solana, Cardano, pick your favorite Cardano, coin. Yeah. For us to like have a meaningful discussion, yeah. there's no point in us not talking about those kinds of things but if we just come out like from day one and say well this is the third coin it turns off uh, the conversation for a long time so it's supposed i supposed to I be a little more hypothetical i think mm -hmm. like okay. we don't really get to decide what the third coin is but there's lots of opinions about what it could be you know i think i think we have a clear consensus on what the first two coins are like even yeah. though litecoin and a whole bunch of other things exist they didn't really innovate that was not yeah. innovative like and those that's are the all key just, there is innovation yeah. litecoin right? and dogecoin they're basically just forks of bitcoin the slight clones very minor code changes to the bitcoin source code they're basically the same uh and they're proof of work coin they operate at the same frequency there's a new block every 10 minutes etc cetera, etc cetera. uh litecoin i think has what um a lot more of them than the 21 million. Didn't they do like 21 billion or something? Ethereum is the second coin. I think everybody And why? That. So I don't write code. What's the fundamental difference? Why is... Smart contracts. Smart contracts. Ethereum was a game changer. Well, so it, it's... Bitcoin started everything, right? Satoshi Nakamoto uh, and the invention of Bitcoin invented the idea. And it brought together a lot of stuff that was already in the mix, right? I mean... When you say invent, it's sort of like everyone stands on the shoulders of those who came before. And Bitcoin is no different. There's a lot of crypto punk that sort of went into the origin of that. And there, there are great podcasts that already talk about the origins of Bitcoin and what it brought to the table. But I think everyone can agree that like Bitcoin was the first. So if you look at like what happened next, just in time, there were a bunch of other coins that are really close on the heels of, of Bitcoin. But they didn't do anything like new. They were just like other things that sort of still built on top of that same UTX model, the same consensus mechanism. They were literally just people that went, hey, if we write some new code, call it something different and get a bunch of people to buy it when we're selling it after we mine it and we hold a bunch of it, now we're rich. Yeah, I think it was like, I, I remember some of these early conversations and discussions about what was going on in Bitcoin space at the time. And it was like, it was talked about because this sort of came out of people who were very upset with centralization of money policy. And so there were a lot of people who were really still very keyed into gold. And so there were early comparisons to like Bitcoin being like gold in some fashion. And so as gold has its secondary metal, right, that's nearly always been used as uh, how do you trade down? And this had to do with scarcity and some other stuff, but it was like you wanted a, a secondary thing that like went along with it. And so Litecoin came out and was like, hey, we're silver to gold. And they really didn't innovate. They didn't really do anything new. Over time and after like many, many years, Litecoin finally brought something to the table or some devs that were interested in trying to innovate, went into Litecoin and did something that was mildly interesting. None of the other coins that came out really did anything fundamentally different other than some kind of marketing stuff. The second coin, the real second innovation was when Vitalik Buterin said, hey, I like what's going on with this whole blockchain thing, but I think we should have general compute layered on top of that. 
And so he had this idea of the, the Ethereum virtual machine and that you could have this computer that could do general purpose computing and then save state onto the blockchain, uh, not just coin state, but like data state and everything else and propose this whole programming model for how you could you know, do interesting stuff. Bitcoin wanted to do that kind of stuff, but they just didn't you know, realize nobody, nobody did it. Yeah, it was like on the roadmap and they were thinking about doing it. And it was like something the devs wanted to go after. But, you know, Ethereum really came out and did it way earlier and had way more adoption to it. So, so when you say kind of... something on top, what does that mean? Could I literally write an app code and put it into Ethereum and then have it be in the blockchain? Yep. It's general purpose compute. So it's just like any other kind of programming language. You can ask the Ethereum virtual machine to do pretty much anything. And it, it's just like a generalized, what we would call sort of von Neumann architecture kind of programming where you have a, a CPU, it can do some instructions. The instructions are told what to do by the programming language that exists. Then you have the ability to store state, you know, so you can, you can sort of hold something. And that's what your computer is fundamentally doing all the time. You know, as we're sitting here talking on this podcast or you're doing something, uh, playing a video game, whatever you're doing, you have your CPU, you have some memory, and then you have your hard disk drive. And those three things formulate this basic idea of compute. And you can do that in a virtual machine, like in Amazon Web Services. And you can also do that on you know Ethereum, where the virtual machine that you're running is the miner, the, the machine that's actually uh, going to compute the next block. So the Ethereum uh, miners that are out there, they have to provide some amount of, hey, here's what I'm being asked to do in the next block. And some part of that is to compute stuff and to actually do some fundamental uh, running of code and then to save that state into the next blockchain state so that when uh, we move to the next unit of time, like we were talking about earlier, that now there's a whole bunch of smart contracts that would have executed where that smart contract just being that general computation that somebody's asked the chain to do that's going to happen in the next unit of time. You just have the next block. And in the next block, there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be done and you just run it all. It isn't just, runs. I mean, you okay. can have ifs in there, but it, it's like uh, you wouldn't even have the thought to execute it because you don't have this general purpose space of all the stuff you might need to do. It's like you have to actually ask the next block to do something and execute your code. So you have to invoke a function, if you will, on the next block. And you do that by proposing that you would invoke a function on the next block. And you can pre-run this on your own machine. This is how it works. You on your own machine say, this is what I want to have happen. And it's very similar to you know, what we discussed earlier, which is like this spend bundle. So you just have a smart contract that exists at some address out there. And then in the mempool, you say, I want this, this function to be invoked with these parameters, and I'm willing to pay this amount of gas to get that to happen. And in programming, we have a general purpose problem, which is we never know if a program's actually going to do what it's supposed to do. This is just like a fundamental problem in computer science that's like unsolved or unsolvable. You never know if a program will actually do what's called halting. You, you don't know if it's going to run and then produce an output that's reasonable. And how the gas works on the, the miner will run that program for a certain amount of time until the gas runs out. And then whatever is the output of that, it's either I used up all the gas because each each operation within the smart contract costs a certain amount, each amount of 
data that you're going to store costs a certain amount. So if you exceed the amount of uh, you know gas that it takes to run your program, it just says, I couldn't run it. it. You didn't provide enough input to get this done. So I'm not even going to do anything. And you just get all your money back. Then the other part of this is, let's say I pay 400000 in gas. It's called GUI on Ethereum. I pay this amount in GUI for gas fees. If it costs 200000 to execute your program, then you get the 200000 returned to you. And the miner takes the 200000 for execution executing your program. And then the output of the program makes it into the next block. So in proof of work, you have a lot of computers all doing the exact same thing, trying to figure out what the next block is. The one that has that special solution gets all the, the value. And you move on to the next block, which is there may be a whole bunch of other different kinds of gas fees. There's some interesting stuff that the miners can do in there to make extra money. Mostly it's you pick the top transactions and the stuff that has the most gas associated with it because you want the most money. You're always trying to grab the stuff that's the most interesting and put it in the next block. Two different miners could potentially yield a different next block depending on what it is that they're grabbing out of the mempool or the proposed next block. But like, it's still whoever solves it is the one who then gets put in the ledger. Yep. And, and everybody can validate. Go and ahead. everybody can validate it, that it's correct. And that's part of the whole cryptographic thing of what's going on here is uh, that everyone's able to agree that the next block is correct and it's been correctly formulated. So the, the logical question for me being a non-programmer is what is the benefit to having Ethereum run a program rather than me just setting up a virtual machine or doing it on my hardware? It's distributed. That's the fundamental difference is that it's happening in a distributed fashion and that you're making these functions available to any, whereas if they're on your machine, you could run them, but nobody else can run them. In the blockchain space, these smart contracts are oftentimes available for anyone to run in any fashion. Sometimes that's, I want to swap this token. So there have been on-chain things that have been created where you can actually switch uh, off and, and trade things. You can say, hey, I'm willing to trade I don't know, 50 SHIB token for 500 squid token or whatever new things have been created, or I'm willing to trade five ETH for 500 SHIB or whatever it is that's going on currently. Those swaps and those kinds of things can happen on chain. That's the difference. That's why you would want to do it is because you're trying to do something within the space of blockchain. And, and really that's all the smart con programming language allows you to do. It only allows you to manipulate, change, and interact with stuff that's in the, the space of the chain itself. You can't just go out and scrape some information off the internet and then compute on it. That's not how it works. Like the, the programming space for Ethereum is closed. It's only what's inside Ethereum. So if you need some world information from the outside world, you have to bring that onto the chain and that costs money too, to do that. That's called setting up an Oracle. Okay. So which now we're getting into the subject of basically I mean, NFTs. Yeah, I mean, NFTs are like a special construct on like a chain. It's it's a non-fungible token, right? So it means, hey, this is something that's uh, really unique and it, there, there can only be one of it, right? Fungible means that like one thing is as good as another. In the space of blockchain technology, this would be like Bitcoins and uh, Ethereum are fungible. Like one is just as good as another. There's no fundamental difference. There's no between difference those. between the one you have and the one I have. They both are valued at whatever it's currently valued at. 
Yeah, and if I were to say like, have a wallet address and I receive some Bitcoin uh, one day and I receive some more Bitcoin the next day, uh, they just go in a big pile. They don't really, there's not like separate, isn't, hey, here's the Bitcoin. You don't have to keep track was... of the ones that you got from Bob versus the ones that you got from Chuck because they're the, different. They're fungible. They're all the same. The, this, this, it gets into some very deep minutiae about how this really works. But uh, yes, and that's kind of the essence of fungibility. I think when I think about fungible from the world of economics, I think about gasoline, even though there's variation in gas, it's like you, you just dump gas in your car, you get it from Super America, you get it from uh, Holiday, you get it from wherever you get it. They're not fundamentally different. Like gas goes in the tank, the car goes. That's a fungible commodity. And a lot of commodities operate like that. Corn, soybeans, whatever. It's animal feed. You're going to give it to a cow and it's going to eat it. But then you can have differentiable. This is Well, you have grade corn. eight, you have food grade corn, and then you have, uh, you know, corn that's for feed grade right. corn too. And so, and, so, you... and so these would be like differentiable levels, right? Butter's a good example, right? So you can have triple A, grade A butter and whatever. So you yep. have these different ways that people say there's butter. But then again, within that tier of butter, butter, triple A, that's all fungible. As long as you're triple A butter, you're triple A butter. Yep. Now when we get to non-fungible, right? That means that it's each one is different. They're all unique. They're all snowflakes. So this would be like art. A Picasso painting is not, uh, I don't know, whatever your other, this is different from this other artist's piece of art. And these two pieces of art, they're fundamentally different. And even they if Picasso tries to do his own replication of two pieces that are the same picture, they're still non-fungible because he they'd be different yep. unless he was trying to copy them identically, in which even that case, they're different because it's so impossible. An in, in NFT here in this sense, we're talking about a token. So token on the world of blockchain means it's some little subset coin thing that exists on the chain. Oftentimes we're talking about tokens. We're talking about just a little piece of information that lives on the chain in some fashion. And then when we add sort of these words at the beginning of that non-fungible, it means, hey, this token is not, it's not just like something that can be aggregated together, like uh, whatever types of tokens. So like within the world of Ethereum, We've had a couple of different standards for how to just create tokens. And these tokens, really, you can think about them, credit card, internet points, or you know, airline miles. These are similar to what uh, tokens are in the whole Ethereum space. So SHIB token or any of your pick your favorite poison on tokens that, that currently exist and get traded, they're usually created with just like the click of a button uh, using a standard, either the ERC-20 or the ERC-223 standard in Ethereum. You just say, I want this many tokens. And because you wrote a specific smart contract, those now exist on chain and they can be kept track of in the digital ledger. A non-fungible token means there's one of it and it's not just aggregated or whatever number of them. I'm not, it's not... Well, yeah, so I, like for the sake of this argument, like non-fungible means there's one. So you're creating something that can't be aggregated in any way. It's like there, it exists one, one of it only, and it represents something. The idea here is that that token represents something else, maybe a piece of land, maybe a piece of art, whatever. It's, a, it's an on-chain representation of something else. So, so like in the world of NFTs, these non-fungible tokens are used to represent a piece of art, a JPEG, a GIF, a movie file, whatever. And we're going to get more into that later. So, because uh, there's more topics that you're opening more and more questions, which is awesome to me. I think it's time for us to wrap this up because we've spoke about a lot. It was a great beginning to a lot of different conversations that can be had. Any final thoughts, Dan, on where we're going or where you'd like, because we're still in the opinion. We're three different people. We have different opinions. 
We have different levels of knowledge. I could ask you guys questions about one of these things on and on and on, but then you'll get bored talking about it. And I don't, that's not my goal here either. So all of this being said, what would you like to accomplish over the next series of, of this podcast? Dan, any thoughts? Yeah, I just like to see us continuing to explore the the history and expand on some of the stuff. It's interesting to me what I take for granted is something I know that's not common knowledge. And also things I've been learning uh, just by listening to Grant the last few minutes. There's things I thought I knew that I maybe didn't know as much as I thought I knew. You know, Grant's in it at a different level. He's a programmer and um, a developer, and he looks at this code and reviews other people's code and manages people who code. So he's got a different perspective than me. And I'm enjoying your perspective as well. As far as what I'd like to see, I'd just like to see the conversation continue. I don't have any specific objectives. Cool. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to definitely break down this whole conversation into a transcript so that I can start to list all the different topics because we covered a ton today, like literally. Grant, what are your final kind of thoughts here? Just that I... I think that the right thing for the podcast is to never really come out with guns blazing to say what the third coin is. It's, I, I think it's easier to ask a question and oftentimes it's better to sort of just leave the question unanswered and explore around it. I think some of the best television shows evidence this. For instance, Lost was, you know, kind of interesting when it kept asking questions. When it started like trying to resolve those questions, like why are they on this island? What the hell is going on? Then it just fell apart because people are like, well, these answers are dumb. You know, so it's like <laughs> the minute you sort of answer your own question, True. then you you have a bunch of people who agree with you and a bunch of people who won't agree with you. And then sort of just And someday that'll come, but there's so I agree, there's so much to unwrap before we get there. I'm glad we got to the NFTs because that's a hot topic. People want to know more about this. I know from our previous conversations, Grant, that you have a lot more to share, Dan, you as well, that people do not know. From my opinion, they need to know this stuff. This is important fundamental pieces of this puzzle that the general public is not being made aware of because there's money involved. And that's, I think, what's cool about what we're doing here is nobody is going to be making any money. Grant's not making money off of our listeners. There's no ulterior motive of what we're trying to sell here or anything like that right now. Maybe we'll sell something down the road. Who knows? So Grant, let our viewers know what kind of solutions you can help them with, because I think that you're really good in this space. Yeah, I'm just generally been consulting for different companies in the blockchain space. Uh, mostly what I've been doing to date is helping companies that want to get into production. I think it's one of the hardest things that anybody will do at whatever point they've created some interesting technology. And what they're hoping to do is to go to production and actually have customers and have whatever solution that... And you're talking produce. any software... Yes, any software. I mean, I like to work with blockchain. So oftentimes when I get to pick projects, I'm much more interested in working with any company that wants to use blockchain in some fashion that's reasonable. And, and I think it's been a struggle for a lot of companies to find blockchain as a utility to do something reasonable. Uh, personally, I've had a couple of different companies that I've worked with uh, that had some pretty unique utility, but 
right now, mostly blockchain is still largely just used for speculative investment. That's been the primary thing. Even with NFTs, that's uh, still the main thing. But yeah, any sort of uh, company that's looking to go to production and looking for once they go into production, knowing that their solution is going to scale, that is going to continue to meet uh, user demand and do it in a reasonable way with respect to cost. It's easy to sort of over-provision and have lots of capacity and then not have that be elastic. So that's our specialty is helping companies get to production. That might include a couple of different things where we're helping them finalize, helping them get their product deployed uh, somewhere, whether it be a data center or cloud, and then helping them re-architect their solution in some fashion to make it so that scalable and in an elastic way so that it it costs less when there's fewer people using it and it can uh, scale up when they have more users using it without performance degradation. That's our claim to fame. And what's the name of your company, Grant? We're yourlast.com, I-R-U-L-A-S-T.com. Great. So I'll put the link in the uh, comments down here or in the bio. Dan, your last words? Nothing to add at this point. I had a lot of fun and looking forward to next time. Okay, great. I'm Lewis May with Hammersport Marketing. Definitely click that follow button so that you can hear when our next podcast comes out. Thanks again. Have a great day.